Hi, and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast, which is dedicated to helping you live your life as fully as possible through lifefulness. Uh, I'm your host, Sanderson Jones. And I'm your co-host, James Croft. In 2013, I uh, founded Sunday Assembly, a worldwide movement of secular congregations. And I'm the leader of the Ethical Society of St. Louis, one of America's largest humanist congregations. So we're both obsessed with looking at the congregation and trying to work out how it can be done in a way that everyone can take part. I got in touch with James earlier in the year to ask about writing a book with him about lifefulness, and he said yes. We then thought, why not turn all of the interviews for the book into a podcast? And that's what we're doing. So welcome to a no-bullshit discussion on how we can reimagine religion and remix spiritual practices in a way that is secular, inclusive, and evidence-based. Today we're going to be talking money, which doesn't seem that spiritual. So why are we doing it? Because before we launched the podcast, we did a survey of the lifefulness community asking one question. What was preventing them from living life as fully as possible? And a ton of people said money and finances. That's why we reached out to Daisha Kennedy, an inspirational founder of the Broke Black Girl community that provides financial advice catering to black women. At its heart is a 70,000 person Facebook group which provides resources and support to this underserved demographic. Her advice is transforming the lives of her community members and we think there'll be loads in it for you and your broke ass. Yep, in this conversation, you'll get brilliant insights into how to think about money, how to change your relationship with your finances, and how to get better at everything to do with money. And I'll be honest, I was learning a lot from this conversation because I am terrible with my personal finances. It gives me huge anxiety. So I loved learning tips from Daisha like the money minute. You can find out what that is in our conversation and how it can help you. And I really appreciated Daisha's insights into how structural inequalities and racism affect financial advice. And at the end, we played a game that was meant to be a silly, fun thing, but ended up going in a totally different direction. But the more I talk about it, the further away you are from it. So on with the show! Yeah, so welcome to the Life on This Podcast. Uh, it's me, Sanderson. And it's me, James. And today we have an awesome guest, Daisha Kennedy. How are you, Daisha? I'm fine. How are you? Uh, yeah, well, we're really delighted to meet you. And we start off with a question, which is... Uh, because the whole point of the life on this podcast is looking at spiritual communities and thinking, how can we learn from them? Is it possible to do them in a way which is secular and inclusive? And we like to know, yeah, what was uh, your sort of spiritual, religious or philosophical background growing up? I didn't really grow up um, with a spiritual background. It wasn't until my late 20s, well, I'll say my early 20s, that I was introduced to religion, um, to Christianity, and to going to church, and I actually made a habit out of it. Unfortunately, um, I want to say five, six years into joining a church, my father passed away, and I had a spiritual, I guess, setback. So I haven't gone back since my father passed away. So right now I'm kind of on a journey of what does spirituality mean to me? Daisha, you've come on exactly the right podcast because that's what we talk about the whole time. This I know, you, you talk about finances, we talk about this, spiritual <laughs> journeys. This is amazing. Uh, that must have been quite unusual uh, because obviously like one of the, uh, well, it's not only a stereotype, it's actually backed mm-hmm. up by the evidence uh, and by the numbers, like church attendance among uh, black and yeah. African-American communities is the highest group in the US. Like, what was it like growing up black but not going to church? For me, um, when I actually got into church and I saw some of the black families that were in church and how structured their lives was and how it was centered around the church going multiple times a week, all day, Mm. on Sunday, I really could not have fathomed growing up that way. So for me being very new to it, and I guess kind of still being on the outside looking in, 
I was not a huge fan of it, but one of the things that did stick to me, I heard a preacher actually say this was, anyone who you're looking to build a relationship with, you want to spend a lot of time with them. You want to get to know them. It's the exact same thing with God. And so that kind of helped me understand why, I'm not going to say why other people, but for me, that helped me understand why it was good for me to be at church a few days a week, a few multiple hours on Sunday because I felt like, oh, I want to build a relationship with God. I want to spend a lot of time with him. I can do that here in church. I always love pastors have got so, like so often they go and take, they've got this wonderful way of sort of just taking really complicated ideas and sort of like boiling yes. it down into one simple thing. There's uh, Rick Warren is a guy who actually the life of the pastor who the we sort of adapted his uh, uh-huh. purpose-driven church in a way everyone could use it. And he said, like, when talking about whether you should buy a building for your church or whether you should continue renting, he's like, don't tell, don't don't let your shoe tell you how big your foot can be. And you're like, oh, look at that. That's, uh, yeah, don't buy the building until you know how large you are. Yeah. Mm. And, and so we uh, have got, like, the six parts of lifefulness are... Uh, you know, we've now asked people like, what are where do they find answer these needs? So, what would you say your ultimate meaning is? What's like spirituality, or what's the value which is most important to you? Um, I want to say right now at this stage in my life. Well, what I can say is I think the value changes as I grow older and I have different experiences. So, I want to say right now I find value in really being a mom. Um, that gives me a purpose. Each day, um, I know that the things that I want to do in life or the things that I need to do in life, it's a it's a no nonsense situation. It's like I have to do these things because two people, two human beings who cannot do for themselves at this moment, they are depending on me. So for me, it kind of it keeps me moving. It gives me a reason to wake up, a reason to complete all of my tasks throughout the day, a reason to go to bed, checking off a list, making sure that I feel I accomplished everything that I could or I lived this day to the best of my ability because I have two boys in the other room who pretty much need me. And so for me, that was my eye opener. <laughs> I'd say they almost certainly need you. How, how old are they? A 12 and 8. Yeah, they need you, yeah. I reckon. <laughs> Uh, And then the second part of lifefulness is this idea of the second pillar is celebration, which is our sort of translation of worship. And so what is it like? Is there a communal gathering or a sort of personal practice that you do, which sort of keeps you close to what's most important to you? Yes. And this is going to sound real crazy, but me saying my children, the first part being my purpose, my celebration is spending time away from them. So for me, yes. That and makes I sense. Say, That's not yes. crazy. And I say that because when I'm away from them, I get to zone in and really focus on myself. Mm. And I get to replenish and refill my cup. And that way when I am in full drive, being a mom, being an entrepreneur, being a community leader, I don't feel like I'm being drained. And because I spend the most time around them, I don't want, if I get to the point where I'm being drained, I don't want that to come out on them because I spend the most time with them. So for me, my celebration is spending time away from them, replenishing. Even even if I'm just sitting down, regrouping, that's really how, that's to me, that's how I celebrate. Just sitting down in peace, no responsibilities, no, no children, no anything, just being one with myself. <laughs> It's quite in, another one of the analogies I've heard a pastor use to talk about church is actually that place where you go and replenish is this idea that like you've got to be all these things. You've always got stuff to do, but like you go there and you go yeah. and reconnect with what's important to you. And obviously there's different ways you can do that, but yeah. it's just really interesting. You use that word uh, replenish. Yes, I practice a method called grounding. I don't know if you are familiar with that, but I walk out in the grass every day with no shoes on for like five to 10 minutes. And the purpose of grounding really is to have your body connect with the earth and you pick up sunlight. I don't know if all of that's true. It could be all in my head. I don't know, but I know it makes me feel good when I do it. I feel so good when I do it. I don't know. I just feel connected to everything in some sort when I'm walking in like grass or dirt 
um, without any shoes on. Our last guest was Casper Terkal. He just wrote a book about everyday rituals people can do to bring meaning to their lives. It sounds like that's kind of a little ritual for you that yes. gives you something important. Yes, I don't know. Maybe it, the sun or something. Sh- I don't know. Maybe I get energy. I don't know. It makes me feel good after it's done. So it's something that I try to do every day. Literally just saying that has now suddenly made me want to go and walk in the grass. I've got this like, I'm just like, oh God, that's why I want to go and feel that feeling. Uh, Over to you, James. So the next pillar of lifefulness is community life. So where do you, you talked about finding connection with yourself and with nature just a second ago. Where do you find connection with other people? Where's your community? Oh, right now my community is online. I am big on digital spaces and I find my community online. I think that it's so much power being able to connect with people in a safe space, in a vulnerable space without ever having to leave my home. So mm. I find my community um online and it, it's Facebook groups, really Facebook groups because you have the ability to make those secret or private or it's a group of people that are gathering around one specific person um purpose so right now my community is definitely online and what's you, the weird sorry i was just gonna say yeah, what's the, I was weirdest, gonna say the, what's the weirdest like private uh which the weirdest private one that you can talk about <laughs> i'm in this group it's it's called oh i don't know if i'm gonna say the name correct but it's like oh my god i'm an ant and it's like millions of people pretending to be ants and like, <laughs> living, <laughs> it that- is it it's so because I, I joined it because I saw someone talking about it on social media and I was like, this cannot be real. But it literally is million and the group has like millions of people and they're just pretending to be ants. Like everyone is pretending to be ants. <laughs> it's crazy. That has become huge during COVID. I've seen some of my friends posting about it and I'm like, what is this? Follow the queen, you know, be yeah. I'm like, what what is this all about? The, yeah. There's one uh, Reddit subreddit which I love, which and it's called. I think they've even got the uh, the subreddit anti-vaccine, and they got banned. But they were like, guys, we took the name anti-vaccine as a joke. This is actually exclusively remixes of the Space Jam theme tune. <laughs> it's like weird. Weird ass thing. People are so unusual. So yes. you're finding a lot of community on life. How about so the next pillar is personal growth. So how have you grown in your life and how do you try and grow right now? Um, I want to say one of the, the largest areas where I see growth in my life, um, and it's kind of ironic now, is the ability to use my voice and speak up for myself. For years, I was I did not do that. And I said it's ironic because right now I lead a very large community and I'm responsible for speaking up for thousands of people. But for me, it was very difficult. I really struggled with articulating my thoughts and saying them without getting emotional or angry. So I would let the reaction in many cases take over the actual take over before I could actually get the words out of me. So that was something that I really spent a lot of time working on and being conscious of. And now I'm perfectly fine with speaking up for myself and knowing how important it is to do that, to advocate for myself. So I would say that would be the largest area that I've seen growth probably over the last 10 years for when when people don't feel that they can do that they sort of feel that it will be impossible to ever get there and so that's uh awesome to hear hear that and then the other uh the next one as is part of lifefulness is uh serving others where do you feel that you're serving others at the moment Oh, yes. I would say definitely in my online community, I serve probably about 68,000 women every day. I'm working to empower them financially, to teach them everything that I know, everything that has worked for me. And I have no problem advocating on their behalf, Um, going back to being able to speak up for myself. That also empowered me to really be able to speak up for others who, in many cases, cannot speak up for themselves. So I have no problem going into rooms that would, in other ways, be intimidating to someone else, but actually going in and saying, hey, we have a problem. You have the means to fix this. I need you to fix it. And I have no problem um, doing that, especially if I'm advocating for people who I know can really benefit from those resources. So I would say definitely serving people and using my voice to serve them as well as my influence. So 
The last one is changing the world. And I'm wondering, how do you see yourself change the world? Like you're someone who's done a ton of things for other people already. So this is probably easy for you, but what does um, that to mean be, to you? To be honest, as much as I love what I do with my community, I think my biggest piece when it comes to changing the world is definitely going to be the two boys that I raised. Um, I think in mm. the end, that is really what's going to matter the most because I can go out and I can speak for other people. I can stand on stages and give a message. I can do all of those things. But if the two people who live right in my house and watch everything that I say should have the easiest access to me, do not go out into this world and do great things and become great things. I think I'm going to have a real, a real problem with myself um, about that. So I think my um, piece when it comes to changing the world is definitely the two children that I was blessed with and that I'm responsible for. Yeah, you would. Uh, and that is like so often we, you'll, uh, there'll be community leaders, politicians or other people who might be sort of uh have very strong opinions about family life, but might not yeah. be looking uh, after their own uh, as much as. Oh, uh, I see that a lot. And I, I see that a lot. And to be honest, it's so hard for me, especially as a young black woman, when I see politicians and community leaders that have a, a stand. And I, and I know that everyone is not responsible for everything that their adult children do, but it does raise a red flag because for me, it's like, you can't even get your house in order. Why mm. should I be taking, you know, leadership, um, leadership from you or listening to what you say? And the one person you should have the most influence over is kind of, you know, falling off the wayside. And again, it's not to blame them for that, but for me, it does raise a it does raise a, a red flag. It raises a huge red flag for me. That was for me. It was when I saw Donald. Uh... Donald Trump Jr.'s sort of behavior that I started to question whether Donald Trump was quite the leader that he made out to be. That was the first red flag yeah. for me, other than every other single enormous red flag. Uh, the, and so, yeah, it would be great to yeah, just like tell us a bit about your, because your story of how you got into this is, is one of the things actually we go and find with so many of the community leaders that we speak to is a lot of them didn't, there's no school to be this sort of community leader. There's no sort of uh, way in. So how did you end up running this now enormous uh, group? Oh, my goodness. I want to say I, I kind of I walked in it. I did not set out to, like you said, to start out um, with a large group. Or it was not my mission to be a community leader. One of the things that I think makes a great community leader is someone who has the ability to be vulnerable and transparent when facing adversities. And that was exactly what I did. I went through a lot of financial hardships. I have over, at this point, 15 years of financial experience. And even with everything that I know, I completely screwed up my money. Like I completely made some terrible ass mistakes and it was some things that I really had to live with. But so I thought like, okay, with everything that what I What sort know, of mistakes I, were that? Just so whew. that people know the, that you can get from uh, that position to We're your position We're asking you the now. heavy questions now. Uh, yeah, so, so Getting into the from, money shit now. Yes. I went from a retail job, I think probably making like $7 an hour. Um, I did not know much about money management at this time, but my mom came to me. So my first mistake was ignoring counsel. When someone does know more than you and the proof is in the pudding, you you, you need to listen. You, you definitely mm. need to listen, especially if it's someone who you trust. Um, my mom, I did not want to go to college. My mom was like, you don't want to go to college. I'm working at a, a, a girl clothing store in the mall. I'm like, you know, they're, they're letting me work full time. I can buy clothes. And that's all mm. that I saw my future as was I get a discount. My mom was like, no. Oh, no. <laughs> she was like, you don't want to go to college. You need to make some real money. You need to try to get a corporate job. So she explained to me things about benefits and pay vacations, things I had never heard of before. Did I listen the first time? 
Absolutely not. So here I am out of high school, didn't go to college. I'm working full time at the mall. My life is going absolutely nowhere. My mom says it again. I finally listen. She gets me hired at a company she was working for, which really started the change of my life. She got me hired at a corporate job. So I'm making, I went from $7 to now I'm making like $11. And, and in 2006, that really was something that for me to be 19, that was really something. When my income changed, I did not sit down and create a plan. I did not say, okay, now my income is going to increase. Here are some things that I can probably pay off. Here are some things that I can invest in. My money increased. My spending increased. Broke. So, like, I had more money, but nothing changed for me. So, I was still broke. And I lived that cycle. And at this time, I had one child. We lived that paycheck to paycheck cycle probably for four years. And I, I never broke out of it. So, in this time I, I have a better job with more benefits pay vacations i still was unable to purchase a car and i made the money i just was not saving it i was spending it all so mistake after mistake then i got married and yes i'm going to say that was a mistake because i was young i did not have the right questions a lot of people skip over asking financial questions when you're dating i am a huge fan of if we've been dating and there's some type of intent here, we need to start talking about spending habits, saving habits, all of that. I did not do any of that. Now, what's your, when do you go into, now in your dating life, when do you start getting into the money situation, would you say? Second uh, date? Me, third date? <laughs> me, <Nate. laughs> me now, <laughs> at this point, knowing what I know, um, I, I think some soft questions are okay. Um, date two, date three. I think just some just soft like questions. more like subtle, more like subtle tests. Yes. Mm. yes, I think that's okay. I think that's okay because that's something that a lot of people skip skip over when you're dating. You really want to impress, so you're not asking certain things. You know, certain women, especially in our culture, don't want we don't want to come off as gold diggers, so we stay we stick away from asking questions about money but for me I, I want to know I want to know because I didn't know before I got married the financial part was huge it came crashing down on me got married got divorced um, when my divorce was over I was left with mountains of debt still no vehicle two children um, no savings so I got injured and I was off work so just being off work for two weeks well I had to wait two weeks for a paycheck that small gap set me back for months and this is now I'm making probably like 20 something dollars an hour. But because I never really sat down and applied a lot of the things that I know, I never really sat down and created a plan. Just that one mishap set me back for months. And so it was really at that point where I was like, yeah, and I say this to myself all the time. I said, Daisha, you are really fucking up. You are really, like, I have to really say that to myself, like, you are really tripping. And it really took me to get that point to realize it, it, it was time to make some changes. So I started focusing on really sitting down, assessing my situation, um, looking at everything that I had coming in, the money that I had going out. I actually created a, a budget, and that was step one to me actually moving forward with my finances. Mm. James, do you have a budget? Do you and your husband have a you budget? Know, I am listening to this whole conversation with a certain amount of horror because we are terrible with money. We, it's, it gives me huge anxiety even to think about it. So I prefer not to think about it at all. And even though we do not have a huge amount of debt or stuff like that, I there's no way I'm investing enough in retirement. We don't have any, like, I don't have any stocks. I don't even know how to get a stock. Like, I don't know how, <laughs> I, I don't know how you do that. And I know that my friends, I'm, I'm pushing 40, like I'm 37. I'll be, the next big milestone is 40. I've got friends who are in a really good financial situation and I'm not. Now, I didn't choose my job to make money. Let's be honest, Anderson. If you want to make money, you don't go into the business of building congregations for people who are not traditionally religious. I mean, because if you're going, if you're at least if you're going traditional religion, you can get into some of that prosperity gospel, yeah, Creflo Dollar yeah, sort of yeah. like mink you can be Joel Osteen, and private you can, jets. You can get your own private jet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can fleece the faithful, but we can't do that. So you know, I. I didn't go into this for money, but I really feel like I should be more responsible about it, but I don't know where to start. So I'm listening to this and being like, I should really call up Daisha for a consultation. Hey there, I thought I would uh, interrupt that great content for some more 
great content. And what I want to tell you about is we are doing a Life on This Podcast launch competition and we've got some awesome prizes to give away. If you go to lifefulness.io forward slash podcast, uh, there is a box there. And what happens is if you go and share the podcast, if you go and send it to your friends, if you go and like our Facebook page and a whole host of other things, then you get one entry into the competition. And there are some awesome prizes there. There's a personal development workshop by James and I. There's a workshop for your company. There are talks which we will be willing to do in your company, your community, or your not-for-profit. And yeah, we would love you to support this by getting the message out there. So what you do is you go to www.lifefulness.io forward slash podcast. And if you're able to share this, then you might get one of those super, super good prizes. So thanks so much. And without further ado, after sort of injecting some little extra to do, back to the podcast. Well, let's see if we can make this happen. What would be like your, because I also know that there are, like my wife, in a way, it doesn't matter how much money you're earning right? Obviously, there's a certain limit, but like there are some people who'll be earning very little and they've just decided they've changed their expectations. They're in control. They know what their needs are compared to their wants and they're they're switched on. And then my wife works with a lot of, she does uh, educational coaching for like really wealthy families. And there'll, there'll be some people who like their outgoings must be crazy. And then they've got like a 200 pound bill and they've got to push it through to next month. So, like, what is what is some advice which, you know, you find that when you give it, like, a piece of advice that resonates the most with people? Or if you've got the, a few. The first thing, yeah, the, the first thing that I always tell people um, is that personal finance is personal. Um, that was one mm. of the things that I learned very quickly. I think a lot of the financial literacy advice is very mainstream. It's taught from a place of privilege um, that they think that people already understand the basics. So when you have people, especially people in the African-American culture who do not understand the basics, the mainstream media um, financial mm. advice goes right over our head until someone um, like myself steps in and breaks it down and creates culturally relevant financial literacy educational tools to really help help them. So my first thing that I always tell people is that personal finance is personal. So I can't look at what you have going on or or vice versa. We really have to sit down and assess our situation. So once a person understands that this is personal to them, don't compare it to what someone else has going on. It kind of makes it easier for them to want to dive into it. And then the next thing is we have to start figuring out what our habits are. This is the point where my clients hate me when I make them do this, but that's okay. I make them pull I make them pull their financial documents because I'll say, okay, you know, how much money are you spending each month? And they'll say, oh, not much, probably like a couple of hundred dollars here and there. And then when we pull the bank statements, I always tell them, you know, people lie, numbers don't. Yeah. So when we pull the bank statements and we pull it together, now you can't lie to me. So now I'm actually seeing habits that are really causing them issues and a lot of it is people just simply don't know what they have coming in and what they have going out that really is what the biggest thing is so when you say um it gives you anxiety that is very true but one thing that i do want you to know is that it's not going to go away so i would rather you look at it at 37 than you wait and look at it at 67 and it's mm. a thing you really could have prevented at 37 that you're paying for at 67 uh, James, I'm just going to check in quickly. I think we might have to do this somehow. We might have the same financial planning abilities. Uh, what's your level of anxiety at the moment when hearing these things? I'm sort of alternatively like comforted, but then also like, whoa. Yeah, I, I was feeling a bit whoa. Because that, that whole process, and we've started trying to do it, my husband and I, have, of looking what's actually coming in and what's going out just even knowing how many subscriptions do i have to television programs that i just don't need like i never have watched just that just log i'm gonna be so honest here so you know respect my vulnerability listeners (laughs) Uh, 
I hate logging into my bank account. Just logging into it makes mm. me nervous about what I'm going to see. Mm -hmm. I do not want to. I just want it to take care of itself. And I hear you that it won't. But how do you do you experience that a lot of people with who, who just don't want to know because they're so nervous about it? And how do you get people over that? Yes, and that, that used to be me. That that definitely used to be me. So um, one of the things that I tell people again is simply like what I just said before. It's not going to go away. Um, I have people practice what I like to call a money minute. And so what that is is just 60 seconds. Just look at it for 60 seconds. Look at it and get out. And so if you do that every day, if I take one minute of my day, I open up my bank account, if I just glance at it, and let's say I thought that I had $3,000, but when I looked at it, I actually only have $1,500. That's just 60 seconds. But now that I know I'm at $1,500 and not mm. $3,000, I know I need to cut back on probably some spending that I'm going to do. And just that quick look, it, it, it's enough. It's enough to just spark your brain to say, okay, I see what's in my checking account. I see what's probably pending. Just that quick second until you build up um, enough nerve to really sit down and look at it and dive into it. Just practice 60 seconds a day. Get in and get out. And you will find that over time it's going to get easier. And do, does it have to be my bank account or can I, I've got like a $20 bill here. Can I just look at this <laughs> for 60 seconds and then does that work? Uh, I would say no. Oh, I would say gosh. no. The, okay, that, by the way, that. I'm really glad you spoke about the Money Minute. That was one of the things. Your uh, resources go into loads of these uh, nice mm -hmm. little uh, areas and simple techniques. But there's one, circling back to one word you said earlier, it's that you can't compare yourself, your finances to other people. Like how do, I think so much of our ideas around money are actually around comparison and status yes. and these ideas of what we should have and who we are. Could you delve into that? Like, how do you help people deal with that? Yeah, so right now, especially in the day and age that we're in now, social media influences so much. So if a person is sitting on social media every day and they see someone that's their age but driving Maseratis or living in, like, huge mansions, that is really going to impact you because you're going to start mm. thinking that you have to spend all of your money to catch up, you know, with their lifestyle or to mimic their lifestyle. So one of the things that I tell people is to remove people out of their area, out of their social media, out of their phone or whatever the case may be that encourages them to keep up bad habits that they know that they cannot afford right now. So my first step is clearing the atmosphere. Um, there were some people on social media I love them to death, but I'm not there financially yet. So sometimes it does bother me and it, it may make me want to spend some money that I know that I shouldn't spend. So I had to unfollow them because seeing that every day, mm. I may fall off the bandwagon. Then the broke black girl will be the broke black girl all over again. And I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do that. First thing that I um, always encourage them to do is just clear their atmosphere out. Do not keep people or even things around them that will encourage bad financial habits or that will entice them to spend money that they know that they really should not spend. A lot of it is personal accountability because I can say anything to you, but if you are not sick and tired of being sick and tired or ready to move forward, then those are just words. So again, personal finance is personal and the first step to personal finance is personal accountability uh, i'd love to get into is how you so we had some some of the feedback was from people who live in london and house prices are crazy in london so there are folk uh -huh. who are just looking at this very idea of getting a house or the very idea of sort of being able to establish themselves seems like a distant dream what sort of advice do you have for people who just feel that like when saving for a goal, which seems, you know, almost impossible. So uh, a lot of times I tell people to break their goals down into smaller increments because celebration keeps you encouraged and it keeps you empowered. For example, if my goal is, let's say, 
to save $100,000 to purchase a home. I'm just throwing out some numbers. And that sounds so far away. So every day when I'm just seeing my savings account increase $10 here, $5 there, I'm going to get tired of looking at that because it's going to seem like it's going to take so long. It's forever away. I'm going to get discouraged. I'll probably give up. So, But if I break that goal down into smaller increments and let's say I celebrate every $100, or every $1,000. By the time I look up, I'm halfway there. I'm halfway right there and I'm excited. I'm empowered. I'm, encur I'm encouraged because I've celebrated the small wins. Before you can save $1,000, you have to first save 10. So I, I try to help people reframe how they look at saving for a goal. And keeping that goal at the forefront of your mind, it helps you celebrate every small achievement leading up to the big shebang. So a lot of it really is just reframe work. Um, it, it's not anything that they can do differently because you only can save how much you can save. If you only can save $5, you only can save $5. If you can save $200, you can save $200. But it's really reframing how you look at it. If I'm $5 set closer to my savings goal, that's an achievement to me. That's $5 that's pushing me closer to exactly what I'm trying to do. So most of it is just looking at it a different way, changing mm. the perspective about how you look at finances, how you look at budgets. For example, people think budgets are so restrictive. A lot of people, when they hear it, they think like, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that. It's not in the budget. But the way I coach is, I said, you can do whatever you want to do if it can fit in the budget. So if you like gambling, if you like hanging out, if you like drinking, if those are things that you want to do, if we can add it in the budget, you can do those things. Either we can add it in there, you can do those things. So for me, I, I don't like to give it in a way where it's like, oh, your life is going to be so boring, work, pay bills, save money. It's like, no, you can still live a pretty full life as long as we can fit it in your budget. I was just going to say, a lot of what you're saying, Deisha, sounds very psychologically sophisticated in that it's matching what I know from research about how people are motivated. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I've got an app on my phone that's about weight loss, right? And it does a lot of the things that you are talking about in terms of breaking goals down, regular yeah. celebrations, um, controlling your social media environment so that you're not surrounded by people who might kind of lead you into bad habits and things like that. I, I'm wondering, is this something that you've studied or did you just come come upon it on your own or how, how have you developed these methods yes yeah, so it's not something that i that i studied as far as like going to school for but it's like a personal study i've worked in customer service and financial institutions for so long well i don't anymore but for, for the years that i did it would just be repeat habits that i would hear over and over and over again so when i had to talk to certain people most of the people were black women I, I knew that I had to give the message in a, in a different way. And it was very difficult because working at a financial institution, I had to stick to a script that they created for me. So it was very basic. So I felt like I'm not really helping them because I can't, you know, give the message to them a little differently. But I started to do it anyway. I mean, I didn't get in trouble, but I just started to like say different things and reword the script so that it really grabbed a hold of them. And if the customer initiated or said something about what they were struggling with mentally around it, I'm like, okay, that's my cue. I can jump in and try to wheel them in. And that's really what I started to do when I was working. So it was just, it was just the constant experience I was having with customers. And it was always the same thing. It was just how they were. They felt defeated. They felt that, Financial institutions really treated them as just a number. They just want to answer the phone, get get them off. No one wants to help. But when I really started to listen to people and some of the problems that they were having, most of it was just reframe work. Like the tools are already there. You can open your phone and get the easiest budget app that will do everything for you. You can go into a bank and get someone that can work with you to create like a budget. The tools are there, but a lot of it is reframe work. And actually in our community, I can't fault a lot of black people, especially black women for not trusting systems that are out there because as the world sees, they don't always work in our favor. So it takes someone like me or other community leaders to take exactly what financial institutions are doing, but give it in a different language and in a different way so that it's actually retained by the people who need it the most. There must have been on that journey, there must have been some moments of 
where you suddenly thought, oh, that's made a huge impact or like when you express something differently and you just saw it like go and click. Yeah. Uh, could you like, it, I, I love hearing those stories. Could you share any of those moments? Yes, absolutely. So for me, it was being very transparent. I had to put myself on the line a lot. And so now pretty much at this point, the whole world knows all of my financial business because letting people know that they're not alone, that I've been there too. And I'm not just saying that because it sounds good or I'm trying to book a sale, like really telling them like I've been exactly where you are and that really laid the groundwork mm. for my community talking about money is such a taboo topic people do not like to talk about no. that but if i'm talking about it among someone who has been exactly where i have been or or probably is there with me i feel like i have an accountability partner i feel like i have someone who understands it i feel like i have someone who will not leave me behind as they move forward and that was the culture that i built with the people that i would talk to on the phones and what really gave them the opening to be open and honest with me about what they were experiencing so that i can actually help them was me saying my own story was me really telling them like i I've worked in financial institutions. I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but it was in my mind I was not doing it. And it took for me to really be in horrible positions with my children, to be without a car for years. So I had to go through rain, snow, sleet, anything with a baby on my hip and a baby in my stomach. I've been, I have had to run from a dog. I've spent all of my money not even thinking about it. And this is a story that I really share with them. Um, a lot of times when I work with people, I see that they spend a lot of money on food and they always say, oh, I, 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 I'm hungry or I don't have time to stop and cook. So I tell them that I was that exact same way and my light bill came and it was due for disconnection and the amount that it took for me to pay was $19.67. I did not have it. This was on a Wednesday. My lights were disconnected on a Wednesday and I had to wait until I got paid on Friday to get them reconnected. I didn't have $19.67, but when I pulled my bank statements, I had spent $19.67 20 times on food, on nothing. So for me, when people say, you know, oh, I don't know where my money is going. For me, it's like you ate it. I know exactly where it <laughs> is when you ate it. And when, when you break it down that way, if people really realize that a lot of times it's them, it's themselves that really keep them um, held back when it comes to moving forward financially. And I don't want that from someone else. I don't want you your life to get cut off because you don't have money to hold you over for two days or it's such a small amount. And then I couldn't go to family and ask for the money because my pride was in the way. Here I am, someone who makes a decent amount of money. Um, I'm claiming to know all of these things. And this was years ago, but it was like, still, I have a decent job. And I don't have $19.67, so my pride got in the way. And so all of those factors just build up, build up. And if a person doesn't have someone where they can go to and be open and honest and vulnerable about that, they'll repeat that cycle forever. And that's basically what I did. One thing that I love about, what a wonderful, uh, yeah, amazing illustration of that point. One thing I love about your work is, again, there's there are these financial coaches, or I mean, actually sometimes it's just uh, people with opinions about folk who have got, uh, you know, might have a difficulty saving money, and it's entirely put on the individual. And what's really great is your work is that you like say that obviously there are these individual pressures, but you also look at the wider system and you go and advocate to make those changes. Could you talk about some of the systemic issues black women face, uh, particularly around personal finance? Absolutely. Right now, um, black women are leading in entrepreneurship, leading in education, graduating from college with the most degrees. But on the flip side, um, with us leading in entrepreneurship, we struggle with getting access to capital. So a lot of the businesses are self-funded. And if we struggle with getting access to capital uh, and we already are getting paid less, we struggle with sustaining the businesses. So, yeah, we're starting them at alarming rates, but they're not growing. They're not staying open very long. Even with us graduating, um, leading in degrees, 
We're graduating with most debt because we don't have our own money to put up for education. So we're taking out multiple student loans. So for us, it's a repeat cycle. It's a repeat cycle that I feel, especially in America, that the system is aware of. But it's a system that works for other people that don't look like us, but it, it doesn't work for us. So we're faced with having to work 10 times harder just to be equal. And, and to me, that is a huge problem. So when I speak or when I advocate on behalf of the importance of financial literacy for African-American women, I try to highlight how important cultural competence is. You have to know that it's cultural differences when we talk about personal finance. So financial institutions and banks and government officials and schools, I feel that they have a responsibility to be culturally competent and create resources that are equal for everyone. And not just say, oh, it, the, the resource is there, anyone can use it. It's to say, no, we may have to give this resource in a different way to different people so that they have the same chance and the same advantage as other people. And for me, that is the, the biggest thing that this is a problem that the world knows about. I believe the world knows about, but it's something that's continuously overlooked. It, and I think that's that's a huge issue because we, especially as black women, it, I think it's going to take a long time for us to catch up. And with that being said, there are resources available that I think financial institutions could put out there to really help. But that's not happening. So that's what my fight continues to be about. <laughs> Do you know a Facebook group which might have examples of these sorts of financial institute, uh, so financial resources which could help black women? Any out there uh, which spring yes, to mind? Yes, yes. The Broke Black Girl, yes. The Broke Black Girl is um, I, The Broke Black Girl is amazing. And, I, and I'm just, of course, I'm biased, but I'm not just simply <laughs> saying that. I'm not just simply saying that. I think that the Broke Black Girl, what makes it so amazing is the Broke Black Girl is a true testament to what it means to be an African-American woman in America facing financial hardships. You really do feel like the Broke Black Girl because you cannot go into financial institutions. When I say financial institutions, I'm talking about banks, lending companies, real estate. We can't really go in there and get resources that are not created from a place of privilege. So when we go in there and we are not measured up our chances of getting help or access to anything is very slim so spaces like the broke black girl has to be created so we can teach other black women how to use certain things to their advantage or how to really take accountability for themselves and then be empowered and encouraged by a group of other women who look exactly like them who have experienced the same thing that they have experienced so we both live in st louis right and st louis has been at the center of a major racial justice conversation yes. over the past few years and some of the terminology that you're using to talk about financial advice is also terminology that's being used more widely in sort of the broader culture about privilege and about systemic racism i think mm -hmm. is essentially what you're talking about and i wonder i suspect there are some white listeners who might think well what does that look like in the financial space that having never encountered it they might not have a model of really what systemic racism in finance might look like and what it might mean to translate resources so that they don't come from a place of privilege. So can you talk a little bit about mm -hmm. specifically, what are you talking about? What are the barriers that black women particularly face and what does it mean to, to take the white privilege out of financial advice? Absolutely. So for example, um, and I'm not going to say his name, but he is not a financial coach that I admire um for example a lot of mainstream financial advice encourages people to be debt free i think that in many cases that may work for someone else who has easy access to capital or who is being paid fairly for their work to not have any type of debt it makes sense for them but for african-american women who do not have that we don't have access to capital um we are not properly paid fairly um for our work we have to leverage debt to move forward so when you have mainstream financial coaches and advisors saying debt is bad don't worry about your credit score etc etc for us it's like that doesn't work for us we need credit. We need to leverage debt in some cases to build wealth because we're already starting at zero. So 
that that kind so when 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 financial literacy advice is put out as one size fits all people are skipping over a group of people who that does not work for so what you have is other financial coaches repeating that other financial advisors upholding that so that when African American people sit down in that chair who come from disenfranchised communities when they sit down in the chair for them for help they say this to them and for us it's like so what how does that work for me and when they don't change it or when they don't cultivate it around the 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 person that's sitting in front of them it leaves us we, we don't get the help and the resources that we need and so it, and it goes so much deeper and I, I think this is a good time for um if, if the white listeners that are listening to really use this moment as an educational piece to really look into financial li- um literature that's not just centered around personal finance advice, but personal finance education from an African-American standpoint to research things such as redlining, to research things mm-hmm. such as um, uh, credit, uh, building credit or building wealth or um, research books that dive really deep into the history of black economics. I think if, if they were to pick up literature that covers certain things like that, it will really open their eyes to a lot of things that they did not know exist. Um, for example, when you live down, when you live on one street and that street is very upkept and the block around the corner is not, that's an example of, of redlining. And what that means is that you are the, the bank and, and, and this is something that impacts us now that it's illegal now, but it still impacts us because a lot of black people were forced to live in one zip code or certain zip codes in a city Perfect example, with me and you living in St. Louis, you live in the Central West End. Are you familiar with the Delmore Divide? Do you know about that? You bet, and I see it every day. I live one block from Delmar, and it's visible. Like, when you cross that street, the difference is yes. absolutely palpable. That's it. That's it. And so just talk and through. And that's the just, result talk of... Through for, yeah, yeah, explain redlining. How? Then. Yes, So the, and that's the result of systemic inequalities perpetuated by a system that has decided who can get mortgages who can live in what areas that and people of color are still facing that today i shouldn't be the one telling this story you should be the one telling this story deja sorry by the way i just want to jump like when you were first making your point you it was such a good point about how uh just this idea of living debt free that it made me laugh just because it was just so ridiculous that this is something I've seen so many times. Like you've got to be debt free. You've got to be, and just didn't think like, I was like, well, look, that's not really for me. I've got whatever. Didn't think how, you know, how Mm -hmm. privileged that is of like all the things which you need to have in your life uh, in order to do that. And yeah, yes. I mean, it's actually it's like, so what's the solution to your financial issues? Just don't have any debt. Oh, well, great. That is, uh, yeah, that would be really easy. It's like, what's the solution to getting fitter? Run the 10 meters in 10, se- in the 100 meters in 10 seconds. That's the solution. Yeah, and see that, and like I said, that works for people who have money. It doesn't work for us. One thing that we were going to do, because I'm uh, aware that you've already been very generous with your time, is that I read this amazing blog post by someone who uh, uh, came along to your uh, event in uh, St. Louis, and she was uh, just enthusing as uh, enthusing about all the uh, all the different uh, black female entrepreneurs there were there. And uh, the one thing she said, which is just really amazing when she was talking about you, uh, she said, uh, I didn't know what I was in for, but I knew if nothing else, I had to play my part in supporting Dacia and her mission. What do they say when someone of importance to the culture could be at risk? Protect them at all costs. Not that Dacia is in any danger, but when you have a servant's heart, I sometimes think it can be overwhelming or even discouraging at times. So anyway, that was just a wonderful thing. Uh, but honestly, stuff like that, I'm almost choking up reading it because I'm like, Dacia's done such good work. I thought I was going to go. Uh, and uh, But then they were talking, uh, she was writing about this, how much black girl magic there was there. And uh, whenever I hear about black girl magic, I'm like, oh, God, that sounds great. But just never going to have any of it. Uh, and neither should I. I'm not going to try to appropriate any black girl magic there. But what we wanted to do was just as we were speaking about lifefulness and looking at your life of 
we th- I thought, what would the church of black girl magic look like? And that we would just have fun to like try to think up between us of like, but then I suddenly thought, why have a church? What would be, what would the bank of black girl magic look like? So using lifefulness, I thought we could just design the dream black girl magic bank. Oh my goodness. I have never thought about this. This is actually a good exercise. I think I might do in my community because I have never thought about this. Yes. I think this is good. I think this is good. Are you going to start a fintech company? I mean, I seriously, Bank of Black Girl Magic. I can see it. I didn't write I can see it now. Oh, no. I'm going to buy the- I have an idea that I think this accelerator program is going to help me um, kick off. <laughs> that is that is, um, that is definitely on my list. I cannot think of who the dream teller would be. That is, oh, who, who would be the dream teller? Instantly, I really want to say my mom. And the reason why I want to say my mom would be the dream teller would be because my mom is, I think that she would do good as far as like customer service, but my mom is a mom. So she, when she pulls up someone's bank information and she sees like they're probably doing something or spending money that they really shouldn't do, (laughs) I think she'll have like a real motherly feel when she addresses that. And so that'll make people, um, scared to show up to the bank knowing that they've been doing something they shouldn't um, be doing. Okay, so like a mixture of fear and love. I like it. And then uh, ultimate meaning, when we started this before, what would be like, what's the, why does the bank of black girl magic exist? What's its like deep spiritual purpose? I would say the purpose of the, the bank of black, of, of black girl magic would definitely be for black women um, to learn about culturally relevant financial literacy as well as entrepreneurship. I am such a huge fan on um, black girls owning something, whether it's a business or a piece of property. It would definitely be centered around that. My goal would be for women who come to our bank to get access to grants, access to loans. They will learn how to monetize um, the, the loans that they get, they'll learn how to double them, how to double them. Oh my goodness. My, it's so many ideas that's flowing through my head. I think you just gave me some homework. <laughs> this is great. And I, I, like, because it was a church, this was going to start off as a sort of like, we're going to do the church of black girl magic and that you can imagine the songs people are singing and all that. But instead we've actually come up with a business idea for you. It's not as funny, but it is sort of like, uh, it, it, like you know, it's teaching us a lot. And then, so then the other one is celebrating. Like, what's the celebrations that you've got in this uh, in this bank? Oh my goodness, I can see night. Oh, I can see just nights of 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 just the one night where we're not worried about a budget. Just one night of like luxury to celebrate all of the accomplishments. It's so many. I'm seeing so many things. Like, you really have my wheels turning now that you said this like i'm just seeing so many things like i'm such i am such a huge Hello. fan <laughs> i am such a huge fan of just, of just celebrating especially black women and the accomplishments that they make because i know how hard it can be for us so you have my mind just going all over the place we need to get we need to get that amazing actress from uh, parks and rec for treat yourself you know, I don't know if you've seen that. It's an amazing treat yourself, fine leather goods, treat yourself. Yeah. And then uh, the community. You did that pretty what's good, Sanders. And I was impressed by that. What's the community <laughs> in this bank like? Oh, sisterhood. I, I, I can just see it. I can just see it so vividly. I can see just oh. a bank just being ran by some of the most educated some of the most influential black women showing up in one space, sharing resources, actually sitting down and working hands on, on hands. And it's not just when you go into a bank, you put your money in an account. And you, like sometimes going to the bank is such a headache. Like I just want to get there, do what I got to do and leave. Like I can really see black women. Show- you don't want to leave this bank. You don't want to leave. And my son, they keep popping up in the camera I'm, I'm gonna have him there doing something something heavy lifting. 
the uh, and so then we will we'll try to keep your son has been very patient so we'll try to wrap up and like what's the personal growth how are like these uh we're, how are like these uh, women learning and growing and becoming like their so like super most magical selves oh my goodness i see the women leaving the bank confident that is really one of the biggest things just being confident and empowered to really take charge of their finances like i really see women leaving and knowing exactly what to do once they go outside um and they have to interact with real life money issues i see them really leaving with tangible things you really just gave me a piece of homework to do because i'm so i think the podcast might have changed the podcast has become a different podcast and I love it. <laughs> oh my goodness. So we've got two more, which is serving others and changing the world. This bank of black girl magic, how is it serving others? How's it changing the world? What's happening? Yes, so what I what I see, yes, it is a bank of black girl magic. Yes, it true indeed is. But I see it changing the world because I think to have hundreds and thousands and, and in many cases, millions of black women knowing how to take charge of their finances and actually applying that to their life. I think to have millions of black women doing that, the whole world would benefit from that. So it wouldn't just be something that only black women would be able to benefit from. It will be something that black women will be able to benefit from, that black families will be able to benefit from, that in return, the entire economy would be able to benefit from. Like I see it being life changing. I see it just being next level. <laughs> hey, should I tell you what? I am, uh, I'm going to ask you for advice on how I can save some money and then I'm going to invest it in your bank because I've got sort of supreme confidence in this bank. Well, let's go into, where's it going to be in St. Louis? Where's it going to be in St. Louis? I don't know. I don't know. Just, oh my goodness. It's just so many things just, just going through my <laughs> head right now. Oh my goodness. I don't know. And it's so crazy because you, you're in the accelerator program. So just doing the projects with that was so tedious. So now you just gave me another piece of homework to do. So now I'm right back in your accelerator program. But a fun piece of homework, a fun piece of homework. Have you? I've, I've got a question. Who is going to be on the money? Because they have to print their own money, right? So so who would you put on the, on the bills? Honey. <laughs> Michelle Obama. I'm putting Michelle Obama. Yes. I love Michelle yes. Obama. I'm putting her on the money. I'm putting Michelle. Uh, I would say Michelle yeah, Obama you... and Beyonce. That's the one I'm putting on, on the money. But what denominations do they get? Like who's the one dollar and who's the hundred dollar? That's a difficult one. Difficult. I that's difficult because I love Beyonce, but I love uh, Michelle Obama too. So well, look, we don't want to end this idea by slighting one of them. Yeah. So, like, I think this is the ideal. You've James, you've just gone into this. There we were. You know, I think Daisha and I having a lovely thing, and you've got her to try to compare women. And shall I tell you what? <laughs> I think there is too much comparing and demeaning and putting in a list. And I apologise for my podcast co-host. I, James. I also apologise. It was wrong of me to suggest that one of either Michelle Obama or Beyonce might be worth one or a hundred dollars. The uh, hey, look, we have loved speaking to you. Where can people go and find out more about what you do and go and follow you online and other things like that? And is there a specific thing you'd love them to go and check out? Yes. So. You can find me all across all social medias at The Broke Black Girl. That's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My website is www.thebrokeblackgirl.com. Go to those. You can find out anything that you would want about me. But my challenge is to anyone who is listening today, sometime this week, whenever you hear this, to invest in one piece of literature that is centered around black economics. Just to get a better understanding of exactly what it means to be a black person in America when it comes to economic development and wealth building. Just one book. One book. I think that would that would be my call to action to anyone who is listening. That's amazing. We'll go and put some of those in the show notes on uh, www.lifefulness.io forward slash podcast where you're going to find it. Daisha, thanks so much for your time. You are amazing. This has been so fun hanging out with you. And uh, I can't wait to see how our paths uh, cross uh, in the future. Uh, so uh, yeah, thanks so much to everyone. Bye.
Thank you guys for having me. It was nice meeting you. You bet. And Daisha, sometime when this is all over, I- I'll have to take you out for a drink or whatever in St. Louis. We can talk about this this very messed up city we live in. <laughs> yes. Okay. That, that sounds like a plan for me. How great was that? Uh, that The end of that podcast, uh, as, like I said, thought it'd be a funny little bit. Turns out, I think we might have... Uh, might have witnessed the start of an awesome new fintech giant, a black unicorn uh, being ridden by Daisha Kennedy. What an image. Uh, yeah, she's amazing. Please go and check her out. Uh, if you've listened to the end of, end of the podcast, you'll know that I take this time to just talk about where we are with the life on this project. And so, yeah, this week we launched the podcast, which was super exciting. Uh, we were able to get to number 11 in the mental health podcast charts. Thanks so much to everyone who downloaded and listened. Also, thanks for your feedback about the audio quality. Apparently not always as good as it can be. We are looking into that. You know, just really loving doing this podcast. And then the next thing is that we're also, we've got the life on this community. And that's something that we're going to be growing through small groups. And if you want to go and join in, go to lifefulness.io forward slash membership. They are a regular group where you will be... Uh, meeting up with really amazing, inspiring people who to go and hold each other accountable, uh, to go and support each other. The discussions will be on some of the sort of big topics we bring up in the podcast. Sometimes there'll be sort of uh, different content or courses there, but it really is about sort of, you know, taking the ideas which are discussed in this podcast and bringing them to life. Like we're going to start off small, but the whole point of this podcast is that we can grow hopefully hundreds of those groups. And when there's enough of those groups in the area, they can come together into a community. We are setting up these little cells. Normally that's used about terrorist groups, but these are like, this is more like a positive, joyful form of radicalization. And uh, yes, yeah, so go and check it out at lifefulness.io forward slash membership. You can join these small groups when you become a member. So the next thing to do is the credits. Thank you so much to everyone who's involved in the podcast. Thanks to all of you guys for listening. Thanks to Daisha Kennedy, you rock. Thanks to James Croft, you are my rock. Thanks to Mav Shetty, the producer. Thanks to Will Andrews for the artwork. And thanks very much to Roman Rapak and Miro Shot for the music that you're listening to now.